Welcome to the If You Build It, Will They Learn podcast, a show dedicated to modern learning and development with your hosts, Daniel Mendonca and Scott Babcock. It's podcast day. Welcome to the show. This is If You Build It, Will They Learn. I'm Scott Babcock and with me is your co-host, Daniel Mendonca. Daniel, how are you today? I'm great. Happy Thursday. Happy podcast day. Um, hope your uh, Easter weekend was great. I know it was also your birthday weekend as well, Scott. It was. Very exciting times in the days of quarantine. We'll, I, we, I will spend some time on that at the end of the show, I think, today. But uh, yeah, it's interesting living in this world we live in. So um, how was your Easter? Good? Yeah, it was good. I mean, I um, I, I cooked ribs for the first time ever my, my myself. So that was a you know, a journey, but uh, they turned out really well. My wife, who is typically my biggest critic, especially when it comes to cooking, um, said I did a great job. So, and you did a wonderful first time photo shoot with uh, the young, the young one at your house. So she looked yeah. adorable on, on top. Yeah, of- I mean, she cried. She cried most of the time. Uh, we kept trying to, we kept trying to put a cute little bonnet on her. Not having it. So, yeah. oh, all right. Well, you know, that's the way that works sometimes. Today's topic is something kind of different for us. We are going to dive into the world of virtual reality and how that might play into training. Uh, we're pretty excited. Today we get to welcome our first guest to the show. Uh, we're going to set up the show today by starting with the interview and then Daniel and I have spent some time afterwards digging into all of the wisdom and the content that comes out of that interview and seeing how VR can come to light in the world of training for you and your organization. We would like to welcome Scott Marath uh, to the show. He's the Director of Global Learning and Project Management at MTI, Mobile Technologies, Inc. Scott's a 15-year veteran of the training industry with the majority of his time spent in retail, automotive, and manufacturing. He has a focused passion on the modern learner and the technology uh, they use today, which has really brought in the opportunity to implement and test virtual reality uh, in blended learning strategy, while also working with uh, clients, partners, uh, and uh, him the industry to answer the question, uh, what is the ROI of AR VR training? Uh, we're excited to have not one Scott on the show this week, but two, um, and, and very excited to have uh, Scott Marath join us um, for our discussion on AR VR and uh, L&D today. Well, welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we're really excited to have the chance to talk to you. I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. We're going to talk about something really cool and creative, so that's really exciting for us. Um, Scott, why don't you go ahead and maybe just tell us a little bit about how you would define the types of VR? Yeah, I think that's the uh, the one thing that people are trying to figure out right now. Uh, VR is coming up on the radar in the training world, and um, a lot of people go straight into the the idea that VR is only uh, what we see from like Oculus, right? Um, those are that's like the big, the most popular uh, type of VR. But there are different levels of VR, um, and the, the the one that's probably the um, cost effective is three uh, three excuse me, three sixty video. So that's basically you're you're sitting in an image and you're kind of just moving your head around. Uh, that's the most cost-effective. The second tier to that is uh, something that's called three degrees of freedom or a three DOF. Uh, 
uh, and that's just moving your head. Um, and then the full immersive experience that you can get that you, you can buy with Oculus is called Six Dot or Six Degrees of Freedom. And, and that's kind of the, the, uh, the ultimate uh, experience with, with VR. With um, the, the Six Dot, you know, you've got that opportunity to uh, do room scale or stand or sit while experiencing uh, VR modules. And what room scale means is you can you you have the room to walk around, um, and in in some cases you know people don't have the room to walk around, so they they can kind of just stand or sit and still experience the same as somebody walking around. I find that uh, I find that really interesting because I think like you mentioned at the start, when people talk VR, uh, it's always like you know I I want to create virtual reality or I want to be in a virtual reality experience, but they don't really realize what they're asking for. Um, so that's a really interesting kind of definition, I guess, that uh, is out there in the world. And, and, and do you, do you find that a lot of the discussion, I know we're going to have some other questions, but is around which one is right for, for you for a variety of reasons? Yeah, I, I think, you know, a, a lot of people think that um, you could institute any one of those levels of VR and still get the same results in regards to training. And that's not the case. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the training world is honing in on using uh, three degree or six degree, but the majority of everything is going in the direction of six degree anyways. So uh, a lot of, a lot of companies will try to help training companies and training outfits tr to get them into the uh, the six degree of, of freedom just because it is the the fully immersive experience and you're getting so much more out of a um, out of a, an experience like that for training purposes for sure uh, one of the things that we're always talking about I think is what's the longevity how long is this going to last is it trendy is it fad related or is this more of a strategy that we can kind of cling to on a long-term basis when did you sort of first start discussing vr um as in terms of more for training rather than maybe even the entertainment side i think it's maybe had a little more legs on that side but on the training side of it when do you think how long would you say that's been sort of part of that conversation for organizations uh so so i think vr has been on my radar since 2015 uh, it it was probably 2016 that I started really identifying the, the opportunities using VR technology for training. Um, but, you know, I, I was trying to think of when it all really kind of stemmed for me and, and how technology has taken me to VR. And I don't know if you guys remember, but um, back in the day, we, we had a second life that whole uh, 3D immersive experience that you can walk around and you can be an avatar. So that was kind of the, the beginnings of a VR experience, if you will. Uh, so that was kind of fun, but that didn't, that second life didn't last very long. Uh, but I think that's kind of the springboard for me into getting into VR. I think uh, the other side of this too, maybe in terms of long-term and the transition is, I think for a lot of organizations, VR is very obvious in certain cases, right? So when we think about things like um, high-risk training opportunities, maybe for firefighters or police officers, 
where it puts them obviously in a safer position or maybe in manufacturing or where there's large equipment that again creates either an unrealistic recreation scenario or uh, safety again being part of that. When you think about it for maybe something like a retail location, which we spend a lot of time in, uh, what is the case for VR in some of those other maybe less obvious organizational environments where they could really benefit from VR as a training modality? Yeah, you, you kind of nailed it on the head. It's, it's you know, VR is great for high-risk environments, um, sophisticated skills and, and competencies. The, the, the one thing that probably retail is honing in on is, is trying to figure out ways to leverage it for leadership, communication, and selling skills. Um, this is using VR for the retail space is, is a game changer because now you can measure the proficiencies uh, with the learner. You know, think about five years ago, three years ago, and how uh, retail sales associates, retail staff is, is trained. And it's really about, here's the information. Uh, so it's kind of a knowledge dump, right? And then they're expected to, to go out and, and ap apply that. Um, but within the VR experience, now you can measure the proficiencies. So you can see them actually learn it and then apply it within the VR experience. And then you can measure the proficiencies uh, based off of that. So it's, it's a huge game changer. And you know when, uh, when we're talking, and I say we, the, the training industry talks about VR technology for training purposes, it's like almost like the holy grail of like, this is great because now we can measure from the beginning all the way down to the to the end of that experience when an organization is approaching this and they're trying to figure out how do i take this strategy of virtual reality and apply it to my training organization what do you foresee as the biggest obstacles that those organizations are going to find and maybe just as importantly what are some ways and strategies that you're seeing organizations take to overcome those obstacles uh, once they're actually faced with them? I think maybe the, the concept and then the tactical would be really helpful for a lot of our listeners. Yeah, that's, that's a great, great question. Uh, in, in my experience, uh, you know, there, there's a handful of obstacles that, that you're going to be faced with. You know, cost is probably number one. Time is number two module quality of the build, um, equipment and content management, and logistics. Um, I think those are, are the things that uh, when you start to dive into a VR training strategy for a company or a client, those are the things that will come up. And you've got to really have a good plan to get around that. I think in regards to cost, you know, the, the biggest things that will drive up the cost through the roof, like very quickly is uh, 3D design. So if, if a developer has to create, recreate something in a 3D object, those tend to be very expensive. Uh, creating interactivity with those objects so if I wanted to pick up an object, uh, drop it, throw it, or put it inside another object within the, the VR experience, those tend to be very expensive. And then if you're going to engage with a character within VR, so if it's a, a customer walking through the store 
and you need to identify that person or, or vet that person out as a potential uh, customer for this brand or product, you know, you're going to engage with that character. So you're going to have to build in the animation. You're going to have to build in what that speech um, script looks like. Those can be very time consuming and very, very costly. Uh, so I, I think with all of those things and, and going back to like the, the equipment and content management, that's, uh, I would kind of bundle that under logistics um, because you're not going to have just one headset for five, 10, 15 people to share. Uh, you're really going to have to have a, uh, a, a process in place for asset management. So if you're going to deploy this out, you know, how are you going to manage the, that equipment? How are you going to charge them? How are you going to fix them? How are you going to track them? And then for the, the content management, uh, it's very time, time consuming to build these modules. You know, think about two, three, five months out to build a module like this. So it, it just can't be something where you're going to deploy it and then go back to the drawing board and figure out the next reiteration of that. Uh, it's it's got to have some legs uh, to stand on its own for, for a long time. Uh, so, you know, looking at those things are, um, are big obstacles that, that need to be laid out at the very beginning of all of this. Um, and it takes a different mindset. You know, I, I think this is not the traditional way of deploying training to anybody. And you, you can't think of the traditional ways that we've all been trained in how to create training strategies and tactics and how we measure that. So this is a completely cutting edge technology and we have to think outside the box on, in regards to how we want to position this to our end user. Yeah, on that note, I kind of want to go back to what you just mentioned, but also what you mentioned previously about just the, the holy grail or the way we were analyzing the, the training. I think we had a conversation uh, this past week on the, on the podcast around uh, just a different learning type and the ROI of it and how it's evaluated and L and D in general and training as, as we all kind of know, it's, it's evaluating the the cost of whether it's in person uh, instructor led, or if it's online versus uh, the value in the ROI. Um, do you think that this based upon those obstacles you mentioned and the, the true value that you're getting out of it kind of just continues up that generic, that, that line of evaluation of ROI against cost and that although it may be more expensive, if we feel we're gonna get more out of it, that it is it is more valuable? I, I absolutely think that's true. Uh, you know, and I might be biased by saying this, but I think if it's not already easier to measure ROI with using VR technology, then it will become a lot easier in the future. Uh, you know, and, and, and I know what you're talking about, you know, 10 years ago, seven years ago, somewhere around there, you know, that was a big push for the training industry is, is trying to um, align ROI to your training programs. And that was very difficult. And there was a lot of theories out there at the time. And there still is. And I think once we get into um, technologies like this, they're a little bit easier to measure uh, the impact and measure um, all different types of 
components that lend back to the learner's activity within the training, um, it's just going to get a little bit easier to, to really justify the ROI around that stuff. That's a really great uh, topic maybe to just start maybe expanding a bit more. When you're thinking about VR training and the way it's being deployed, utilized, consumed, and hopefully impacting the behavior outcome of a, of a learner, what right now are some of the metrics that you think can be pulled from VR uh, and should be pulled from VR to become sort of your determiners or determination factors for success as you're evaluating VR as a program. I think we're all very familiar with sort of traditional e-learning metrics, but what do you see as coming out of VR? What are some things you're noticing people really focusing or honing in on to determine that success? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think with you know VR metrics, it's uh, it's really around time spent training. You know, there's some really good case studies out there and, and companies are, are really honing in on these types of case studies that show true value in cost savings um, across the board. And, and let me explain that a little bit more is that, you know, when, when you do traditional training around um, how to drive a car, let's say, you know, that takes me 30 minutes to go through the e-learning course or a webinar or instructor-led training and I understand how to drive the car now. But if I put a headset on, a VR headset, I can learn to drive a car within five minutes. So you can see these things that uh, really impact the, the bottom line for these companies and also the learner. So it's, you know, they can cut down the training experience almost by half, depending on what you're, you're try, trying to train on. But those are, those are probably the, the biggest things there in, in regards to metrics. Um, same thing with um, travel. So, you know, we typically in our world, we, we, we uh, travel around and, and do these uh, in-person trainings and we pull people together, you know, big groups and small groups. Well, you don't necessarily have to do that now with VR training. So, you know, there's some cost savings with, uh, for the company to, to save on, on training. There are some metrics that um, have an indirect uh, impact on employee retention. So we've seen those case studies. And we've also seen case studies on knowledge retention, application, and proficiencies. You know, there's great cut to case studies from Lowe's, Honeywell, United uh, Rentals, uh, Farmers Insurance. Uh, those are all great case studies to kind of show the leadership team on you know, your vision of using VR technology in the future. In general, it sounds like the majority of what you're doing is, or you're kind of recommending is applying this out to other metrics that are living outside of maybe your learning management and trying to tie those together, which I think is always a great strategy for coming up with your approach. In general, if you're trying to launch VR uh, within an organization, will you need to have XAPI or a full learning record store a attached to that to get those metrics? Can you still run a VR maybe more within your traditional learning management system? What are you seeing from some or hearing about in terms of the way organizations are applying more base versus more complex VR solutions? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a good point. You know, I, I started having conversations uh, within the last 12 months with other companies around how do you integrate VR metrics into an existing learning management system. 
Um, and and the, the key to all this is using XAPI. It really is. I mean, you, you can imagine all of the things that you can measure with XAPI. And that fits very nicely with uh, the VR experience. Um, I think we're still a little ways off from having mainstream learning management systems uh, implement and uh, be able to be compliant with VR experiences. But we're, we're moving very fast in that direction. I'm going to ask you to put on your futuristic hat. Right, and think about what's what's to come in VR, and maybe some of the trends you're seeing. Um, what what functionality, what features are you seeing either being dabbled in? Is it starting to come to light? Or are you at least hearing rumors of that you're most excited about VR becoming in say the next few months or even the next years? Maybe you've got a handful that you like that are sort of phased out over time that you think, and if nothing else. Where do you think VR can go? Maybe it's not on the horizon yet, but where you'd like to see VR end up? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, where I think I see VR going in the in the near future is the hardware is going to get lighter, smaller, uh, and that's happening right now. Uh, I think a lot of the hardware is going to be pushed up into the cloud. That's going to make the, this hardware uh, really light to use. Um, where I see VR going in regards to maybe integrating into other technologies, I see a big opportunity using AI and voice, just being able to track the body, the hand mo movements and those types of things. Those, those are going to be big. Uh, I, I think there's something to be said around blockchain and emotional detections and recognitions and using voice. I, I think there's, that's all going to come down the pipeline very quickly, especially with COVID-19. You're going to see a lot of uh, new technologies and integrated technologies around uh, hand and, and body gestures. So you're not necessarily touching any products or uh, uh, equipment anymore. It's all movement, right? So those are all things that could be integrated into the VR some way, somehow. But, um, it's moving so fast and, and uh, it's just a great opportunity now to jump into this and really be uh, in the forefront of, of how this evolves. Yeah, I wanted to hop in um, and I think those are all great points. I think it's, I'm interested to see really how this transitions to the cloud and how um, you're already seeing it with some Oculus products, not needing hardware and having the the engines built into them. The, well, I want to comment on one thing you made. You said at the end, do you feel like the current landscape, um, and I know that I've said this a couple of times the past few days, but Microsoft just announced that they're not having a conference until at least a year out. Do you think that this kind of the same way we're all, all of a sudden we're working remotely and having uh, video conferences is an opportunity where you're going to see a lot of companies maybe leap into or invest some money they would have spent in instructor-led in VR just and take a chance on it and see like, hey, we have no other choice now anyways. So let's see if we actually pull an ROI rather than what's the ROI of that money you're going to spend. Yeah, absolutely. You hit, you hit it on the nail. I mean, we, I've been watching, you know, uh, the training industry in the last four weeks. And I really think that the training industry and, and how we train people will never be the same. Um, we're going to be using a lot more uh, technology, uh, virtual experiences, VR, all of that stuff you know, right now. And, and that's just going to evolve. 
And I think we're never going to get back to normal. And I think this is, this is a great time to start investing and evolving uh, our technology and moving faster to get us there versus trying to test things out and then having a, a blended ap approach around how to engage. I, I really believe that you know, virtual technology is, is going to be the, the forefront. I think we, we opened up the interview kind of talking about what the different kinds of VR and there may be some perceptions around uh, where those are. I think we live in a world where we're challenging perceptions kind of daily now, right? Things that we thought were true, uh, we're having to rethink. Things that we thought were obstacles are we're finding ways to clear those hurdles. When you think about VR in an organization, we talked about some of those obstacles, but maybe it's deeper than that. What do you think are some mis uh, conceptions around the what VR is or how it functions or um, just some things that people maybe have the wrong impression of VR in general as maybe you've had conversations or things you're maybe having to correct people on or... Yeah, uh, I would say there's, there's two things that come to mind. If you take a 30-minute e-learning course, people typically think that will translate into a 30-minute VR experience. And that's not the best practice. The best practice is to create very small modules, five minutes, seven minutes, those types of things. When people think, oh my gosh, we're, we have to use VR for training, I think their minds go straight into, oh my God, I'm gonna have this heads on for 30 minutes. So I, I think you know, correcting people around looking for shorter durations of VR experiences is going to go way further than having very long durations of training. You're going to turn off a lot of people if you have a very long module. I think the other piece to that is, uh, what was it, two years ago, a year ago, um, you know, the, uh, the headsets were fairly new, right? The t technology was fairly new. And, and people would get motion sickness um, if they had it on for too long. And uh, if you um, put on a, a newer headset from, let's say, Oculus, uh, they have done an awesome job of curbing that uh, experience or that bad experience. So, you know, they've done away with the motion sickness that, that people would typically get if they had headsets on for a longer period of time. With that in mind, I think it's, it, I just have a follow-up question to that is for those that may still experience, whether it's motion sickness or just a disorientation or feel nauseous, and it's not an experience they're comfortable with, have you found that it's fairly easy to create an alternate duplication? So again, we, it, it's hard to force someone into a training if they're not comfortable, right? That's not going to benefit them. It's not going to benefit the organization in terms of outcome. How easy have you found it to be to take that module and offer it as a virtual reality simulation, but also give someone the opportunity to take it without a headset on as a maybe a traditional e-learning or an experience where at least they could get some semblance of that simulation or that scenario, but maybe without the, you know, if they, if they do have those mental or physical kind of uh, components where they're not comfortable? Yeah, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I think is key to all of this. I mean, when you're, you're building out your training strategy around VR technology, the number one thing you have to consider is safety of the user. 
Um, and the other thing is, is that you, you, you want to be ADA compliance. So that means if the person can't put the headset on and have that experience, then you absolutely have to have a contingency plan and you've got to have uh, tablets ready to go that somebody feels a little bit more comfortable using than a headset and have that same type of experience. Uh, I'll tell you a story. I had my mom try a VR headset about a month ago. Just had her, you know, do some basic things in the VR. And right when she put it on, I could tell she was, her, her legs were a little wobbly. So I said, do you want to sit down? And she says, yeah, I want to sit down. So she sat down on the couch and she says, okay, I feel a little bit better. So it, it takes somebody a couple minutes to get their bearings if they've never been through a VR experience. So you, you have to have very well-trained trainers or a, a, a safety person that's going to walk that person through the VR experience. They have to be trained on, on safety, you know, making sure that the equipment is uh, clean, uh, making sure that the person's uh, purses and cell phones are secured. So these are the things that you really have to take into consideration. And like I said, it's it's the number one thing is safety of that user. Yeah, I think one of the things that that my when my my first realization that VR was going to be a really impactful thing. I think it's just natural progression. But I put on an Oculus and I, I did one of their M, like the NBA experiences with their with their deal with NBA and and being a sports fan, liking you know entertainment and things of that sort. I put it on and you get to what you can watch a game courtside, right, or or from the stands and. That was the first moment where I thought in my head, like, why would somebody want to take this off? Or why would somebody want to, I started just thinking very high level of how virtual is our experience going to get like in life outside of training. So I think it's, it's very interesting what you just said of like having someone get in there and, and experiencing it. And, and as soon as they get their bearings, you seem to, they seem, you seem to realize that they're actually quite comfortable in the experience. Um, which I think is going to be part of the adaptation is once you get over that hump, you're going to see a lot of uh, adaption and adoption, sorry, by the audience of people who are taking the training. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and as technology evolves with VR, you know, you don't need the wands, you don't need the, the, um, the, the handles as much as you do these days, because now you can just use your hands, right? The, the, the technology is identifying your hands. Uh, and, and that's great. That's awesome. And it's, 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 the learning curve around this is, is just going to um, be shorter and shorter. Yeah, I, I think that's a really great point. I think you make a really good call out in all of that too, though, that um, as you're considering things you need to plan for as an organization, you're trying to roll VR into your training program. It's not just an individual with a headset. There may also be requirements to have a trainer there who can physically get your, your learners uh, familiar with the equipment, make sure the equipment's prepared, whether that be cleaning or functionality or whatever that might be, um, to be able to create safe spaces and understand what's required and be able to help someone acclimate to that, that the hardware and the software that's going to be the experience they're going to be going through. I think you do have to be aware of that. It's not, you can just put someone in a room, they slap on the headset and away they're going. You need to prepare for what that's going to look like and, and make sure you've got those uh, headcount and resources available to you uh, as you plan to bring this into your organization. I think it's a good call. Is there any other, maybe I, we, we mentioned a lot of kind of planning and setting the stage for the way you 
sort of structure and strategize your plan, but are there any other considerations maybe you'd recommend people really evaluate in terms of building out a true business case to either present to your boss or bring to your organization and say, I think this is a good strategy, but here's some things we'll need to know. Yeah, I, I think there's probably three elements to that. Uh, building up a value specifically uh, for your leadership team or, or for a client, you really have to paint the picture of how this VR experience is, is going to be a global experience or, or have a global reach. You know, you, you need to talk about scale and how easy is it to scale this out and how easy is it to manage this experience. I think the second piece is probably, which is very important, is also painting that picture of how your VR experience is going to be attractive for the learners. So it's just not the module that you need to make it attractive, right? You got to make it good quality. You can't have it skipping. You can't have these, you know, defects in the module. But what are you doing on the outside of that experience to, to pull the learner in to say, you know what, I, I actually want to put the headset on and, and experience this, this training module. In, in dovetailing with that, you know, how do you make it attractive? It's, it's got to be disruptive. Um, you've got to be able to change. I would say you have to be able to change the learner's perception of something, whatever you're training on. You have to be able to create a connection and or create compassion. So you want to create compassion for, for the learner based off of the learning module that you're, you're developing. Um, and then the last piece is, is making sure that the training is rememberable and engaging. I mean, those are probably the, the biggest pieces to that. And, and what I mean by that is really trying to create a unique interaction and you have to have a call to action. You just can't have them go through a training and say, great, I'm done with it. Now what? It's got to be purposeful and you got to build in some feedback on that, uh, those modules. Awesome. I think that uh, that really sums up. I mean, it's, it's a good link back to what training needs to be. We're always looking for that behavior change. We're always looking for the way we are changing the actions of a learner and really getting them to buy in to the program. And, and maybe with that, it's the perfect way to kind of wrap up our conversation today. I want to say thank you to Scott uh, for your time today. It's been super insightful and really uh, appreciate you spending some time with us, helping us dive deeper into virtual reality and how it can impact the training of an organization. Thank you again so much. Appreciate it, guys. Anytime. This was awesome. Thank you. Thank you again, Scott, uh, for spending time with us uh, on the show. Um, it was a great, uh, you were a great first guest. And I think um, on a very uh, interesting um, first topic for an interview, what a couple of things that really, really stuck out to me uh, in the interview. And one thing that I think we should really start to dive in on, or maybe, you know, provide some conversation around is the value of VR. One thing that we addressed in the interview was the cost. Um, I think it was a great, his comments on all the different things that, that, you know, go into it, whether it's logistics, um, which involves money as well and cost, but um, the investment in terms of creation of the, of the VR trainings and that, and it really comes down to what is the value of VR. And Scott, I wondered if you had kind of any thoughts on, you know, obviously what, um, what we heard in the interview, but also from your perspective, where does the value lie? Yeah, I think Scott really mentioned a couple of things that were really 
helpful in having this conversation. And the first one was that I think VR is a growing uh, technology overall, but with that comes uh, more and more data points that are able to be sort of pulled and extracted from those interactions. And I think for a lot of organizations, what really will resonate or make it more impactful for them is that those data points now would be tracked. They'd be recorded, they'd be archived, and they'd be ultimately reported on against. When I think of VR specifically for uh, soft skills or leadership, which was part of the conversation as well, typically we've always done those through sort of role plays or you know on-the-floor interactions between two people. VR really opens up the possibility for keeping that as a more one individual participating or a single individual participating, being able to have that same interaction, go through the dialogue, um, but track uh, all kinds of things. And we can get into more of the reporting part of it in a minute. You're, you're now able to go back and report and see the progress or see progression over time. And I think for a lot of organizations, the ability to say, oh, look, Daniel is getting better and better at each subsequent interaction and being able to track that where it's more um, objective versus subjective, which is a lot of the conversation when, you know, each leader might view your conversation differently. Um, to me, that's a huge value to an organization to be able to actually see data points and metrics around all kinds of elements when we talk about that six degrees of freedom um, and what you're able to track and some of the future things that are coming out to light with that. But to me, that's a huge value in, in the data side of it. Maybe that's the nerd in me that loves uh, to put everything into a cell, an Excel spreadsheet and track it against a chart. It, it is going to come down to cost, though. I think that is uh, something we should spend some time on uh, when we get into how how to a plan for, for putting VR into your organization. But to me, that's part of the value. Did you see something differently or hear something that maybe struck a chord with you? Yeah, I think that the one thing that came out to me, and I think it's along the lines of what you just, you talked about was it falls right into the same category of last week's topic, which was micro learning or just ILT training, the costs. I think it's just another pillar of how you evaluate, you know, your value. So now you have a little bit higher of an overhead cost, but we're saying that, Maybe not today, but the opportunity to have ROI related to VR training is a little bit higher than your typical online learning. Although the cost is higher, is the act what you're actually getting out of it higher as well? And I think the only way to actually, there's no studies, there's no metrics out there that are going to put the proof in the pudding today to take to your leadership and say, hey, here's why we should invest X amount more into VR training. But I think the interesting concept we're hearing from a few of our customers, but also peers in the industry is, Let's look at setting aside a little bit of, of money in our budget to try, to, to test, to create, find a partner, find someone to work with, create a VR training or some sort of program and start to get feedback from the field and that and, and kind of create your own value within your organization. Uh, because I think a lot of it has to do with what we're going to talk about next, but the getting your organization to understand um, its value from a learner perspective, but also from your leadership perspective perspective who are approving budgets, approving curriculums, et cetera. So I think it's got to, it has to go into the same category of how we evaluate training in terms of, you know, investment, but also it may be because it's a new concept, um, you should look at also, you know, testing and, and, and trying things out, investing some of um, your budget back into those things to, to, to prove value over time, because you're not going to know until you do it. Yeah, I, I think we can spend a little time as well on, uh, we've mentioned it quite a bit, so let's let's actually dive into it. But what 
what we'll ultimately find is a technology will keep getting better and better. That's part of it. We're going to keep making improvements, uh, you know, whether it's the headset manufacturers or whether it's the software development technology is going to grow. But what, with that, ultimately, we'll generally start to see we're going to see a reduction in cost over time. Now, how fast that happens is obviously to, based on what uh, new findings or new inventions or enhancements come along with that. But we do always see the cost coming down in technology. Uh, so that will help set the stage, I think, for a lot of companies to be able to get into this where it's been unattainable in the past, I think, in many ways, because the cost was always so high. So I think we'll start to see the cost come down. It is still an investment. I think that is the right way to look at this is we won't know for sure whether this works until someone actually gets in and starts trying it on a real basis in all different ways. And there probably isn't anyone else who's going to train exactly the way you are. So I think sometimes we have to kind of take that leap set up a, a test case scenario saying we're going to give this a, a real shot, maybe try to be on the cutting edge of the experience world for our people. But I think more often than not, we're going to keep refining it. We're going to keep getting it better. Um, and it becomes a long-term strategy play for a, a lot of people. And Scott mentioned that as well. So I'm going to, I'm going to swerve just a little bit here and maybe take a detour. Um, and I think it's something that we want to dive into a little bit later, but obviously we've, we've spent a lot of time, I think from a training perspective, talking about maybe sales product training, we've talked about compliance a little bit. Um, but I was speaking to a friend of mine who works in, um, human resources and, and then it, it, it was, he's an HR business partner. And then, and then it'd be really, I asked the question of a few other industry peers as well and about L&D and the modern learner for them. And they're saying the biggest trend that they're seeing amongst the modern learner is leaving because leaving companies because innovative solutions or guidance down, you know, development of myself isn't where the company should be. So there's no way for employees to make themselves better. Their comment on that was that L&D has the ability you know, modern L&D has the ability to be a disruptor and a differentiator for companies. You know, your, your typical HR department don't maybe don't want to make the investment. I think, I think VR may land in that category of it's a way where you could take a, a modern learner. I, I hate this term because, oh, I mean, technically I fall into this category, but, but millennials, right, is, and provide them with a unique training um, environment to maybe learn some different skills. Um, and create some additional value, maybe not on the, the ROI of dollars and cents, and ha- but maybe you're creating value with a, a, a more satisfied employee because you're helping them push the envelope of how they train themselves in the workplace to become a better employee um, and a better you know worker, for lack of a better term. I think that's a really good way to look at it because it, a number of us would probably say we'd rather work for a cool company or we'd rather work for somebody who's trying something and is trying to be innovative or a leader in the industry. And that just makes you feel good as an employee to know uh, your company's pushing the bounds, at least in part. Um, this can support re- retention, whether it be the younger audience or just the audience in general. What does it take to plan out the rest of implementing VR in your organization? There's obviously a number of things, and Scott mentioned uh, a few that I think are really valuable to the conversation, but you got to go through this with a, with an actual plan. It can't just be, hey, this would be really cool to do, right? I think you need to think through some of those thoughts. We talked a little bit about cost. I think uh, don't forget the hardware. This isn't just a software and a development piece to say, I've got a new piece of content that we can roll out. You, you at least have to think about how much uh, learning is going to happen. How many people are going to need this? Do you need 
one, five, 10, 20 headsets per location. Those fall into the logistics, I think, of, of how this comes to light. Uh, Scott really mentioned it, and it is the one that I probably would forget about every time is rarely does someone just go sit in a room, put the headset on, and experience this on their own. At least someone needs to get them set up, get them familiarized, try to help them find the way that's going to be most comfortable for them. Definitely worth considering as well that there there may have to be a facilitator involved to to get the group into a safe place. I think on on all of those notes in terms of planning for change, I think and we talk about getting getting a bit more tactical of how to carry it out. I think it it falls slightly into the category of okay, how am I just developing a training in general? So um, ask yourself asking yourselves a few different questions. The first being, you know, what do I want to train on, or what do I need to train on? Um, so maybe in this case, in terms of the first time. You need to identify a topic that you believe um, in discussions or through discovery would bode well for um, VR training. So without getting super complicated, let's let's be um, straightforward and let's say that we're going to, you know, we're picking up an object and spinning it around and seeing how it functions and looks. So we're using VR to basically hold an object in our hand that we wouldn't have access to. I think from there, you have to ask yourself, you know, who's the trainer? So how are you um, implementing the training? So in this case, it would be, uh, virtual reality and online, and then who's the trainee? So who would be who's the audience who needs to take this training? From there, I would look at um, and identify what they're used to. So you probably need to set up a pilot program within that audience um, to get feedback on kind of the first go around. Uh, but look at what they're used to. I probably wouldn't choose an audience for my first VR training that has only ever done instructor led, or who you know has to use uh, the store POS system um, to take training because that's the only way they've ever engaged with it. I think you look at an audience who's, you know, training on their mobile device and maybe is, is per- consistently providing you great feedback on, on your training or, or challenging feedback on your training. Look at the pilot, get the feedback from the audience. Cause like we said, creating value for your organization is one thing, but you got to create value for the customer as well. So I think once you kind of walk down that process and start to, plan for change. I would say that going to your leadership um, and saying, hey, we want to do this. I think you want to make sure you have those necessary steps at least mapped out prior to uh, going and having that conversation. Because if they ask, how are you going to do this? You want to make sure you're armed with some answers. Saying, hey, we're going to do VR training, although sounds great, is difficult. Um, And if you don't kind of think this one through and walk through the necessary steps, I think you can be a little bit misguided in terms of the, the outcome, which could potentially ruin a great opportunity for ROI um, or to deliver on some of your your, your education or L&D focused KPIs over the long term. I'm going to put my uh, fortune teller hat on and pull out my crystal ball. And I danced around the actual term, but I think uh, objective writing, right? Making sure you know what your objective is. I think it's going to show up in a, in a future show. Uh, it seems like it's a topic that we talk about a lot. I think let's bring it back to, I mentioned data before. And I think that has to be part of your plan as well. So sometimes I think in, in the world of training, it's not a bad idea to, to think about the end at the start. Uh, I'm not sure that actually makes sense, but we'll stick with it. But VR is different than anything else. You can still track completion and time and duration, um, pass and fail. Um, but VR also opens up far more than you probably were ever uh, able to do in the past or able to consider um, we were talking with uh, a company who, who kind of plays in this space a little bit, and they're like, look, you can track head position, hand movements, um, and you can put values to those things. So if you know where 
interaction point, the person that you're going to be having a soft skill interaction with, maybe during a sales scenario um, or a coaching opportunity, you know where that person is. You can actually basically track, are they making eye contact? Are they staring at the floor? Um, are they looking off to the side? These are not things you can actually put value to uh, beyond just observational points. Are they talking too much with their hands? Do they tend to wave? Do they tend to put their hands at their side or behind their back? So those are physical things that now you can actually track as data. Um, and Scott kind of mentioned it, and there's growing capability in even speech recognition. You can identify words that you don't want someone to use. Uh, again, if it's a sales scenario, maybe it's things like warranty. Um, you prefer a different phrasing. You could put uh, negative value on that as kind of misses. And you can score someone's actual speech. How often do they use filler words like um? Probably as you're listening to our podcast, you're thinking we could use some of these scoring, I'm sure. But uh, with that, you can actually put some value to those. You can get some actual data out of that and then provide that back as actual return, I think. Um, you're just going to keep getting more and more data points over time from the technology as well. So this is a growing opportunity to talk about how things can be uh, delivered in terms of value as well. So on that note, I think we talked on a few different points around change. If you were to provide some advice from what we've heard and kind of what you've you've experienced in terms of what's the first step, what's the, the number one thing you want to hit on um, around change kind of keeping it short and sweet, which you and I struggle to do a lot. Um, but like, what, what would that be? If there's one thing from a, a change, you know, planning for the change of, of VR training for the listener, you know, what would, what would that be? For me, honestly, it's, it's going to be the research. Have you done all of the necessary steps to understand a really well laid out plan? I think training always has to fight for those investment dollars. I think if you come with that really solid plan, but it is going to require some research. We've mentioned a lot of the pitfalls that maybe somebody might miss. To me, that would be where I would start. Fantastic. I think hopefully that is uh, some good advice for the listeners. And um, I think VR training and uh, maybe we'll, we'll probably hop into AR a little bit next time as well. I think it's definitely going to make its way back around. If this podcast has any sort of longevity, I'm sure we're going to see the growth of VR. Can't wait to maybe clip clip some of these audios a year or two from now and, and actually see you know, if we were just completely uh, out of our mind or if we were kind of on the right track. So Hopefully some of it holds up over time. Come on, get happy. All right. We like to end the show on a positive note every day and bring you something that we're seeing in the world that makes us happy. So uh, Daniel mentioned that it was my birthday, but uh, just recently in the last couple of weeks, it was also my youngest son's birthday. And all of this quarantine and self-isolation has made it very strange for a young man to have his birthday um, and possibly even harder for parents to find a way to uh, make that day special for them. So, but a few great things did come out of it. One was my oldest son had heard my youngest say that for his birthday, all he wanted was the big number balloon that would tell him that uh, it was his birthday. Uh, seems like a small thing, but uh, my oldest took that to heart. And I'll be honest, uh, when we talk about essential businesses, uh, things like the party supply store don't make the cut typically. So it's really hard to get your hands on a helium filled balloon. So he came up with a really crazy idea. He took Ziploc bags, blew them up, sealed them, and then he drew a marker on them. And then he scotch taped them to the ceiling at a distance. And it actually made it look as if the balloons were floating in the air 
if for anyone who has kids that are probably in, in a close age range to each other, you know that some days they are uh, best friends and some days they are the worst of enemies. And so it was really fun to see him step up after his brother went to bed and, and try to do something cool for him for his birthday. So that made me very happy. Uh, that same day, um, a, a number of friends, knowing they couldn't get together, but they did have the ability to be a little bit mobile, they got together in a procession of uh, three or four cars and they blasted happy birthday music as they drove past our house in a little birthday parade. Uh, it was a cool way for them to wish him a happy birthday and try to make it a little special for him. And then last but not least, and this is a huge shout out to uh, our community uh, here in, in Tennessee, um, the local police department will take orders from parents who have kids that are celebrating. And they know this is a bit of a weird time for them and they want to try to help out. Uh, so they will... Uh, uh, with sirens blaring and lights flashing, they'll come screeching up in front of the house, uh, and then they all hop out, and one of them has a guitar, and they will sing you happy birthday. Uh, what a special way to, to brighten a kid's day, and I will tell you that uh, one of the neighbor kids in our neighborhood had a birthday on the same day as I did. Uh, the police were kind enough, as we were videotaping, to also turn around and sing happy birthday to me sort of impromptu. So uh, that was really fun at my age. I was still just as joyous as the kids in the neighborhood. We may find a way to put that video up online as well. But yeah, it was really fun. We're finding different ways. And I think it was super fun for the kids. And uh, yeah, even for the grown kid that I am. Yeah, although, uh, although Scott, I, you know, I want to wish you a happy birthday. But uh, I, I want to go back to what your son did with the balloons, like replacing the balloons. And that, that was, that's incredible. <laughs> I just, I can't imagine how long it took to color Ziploc bags, but uh, uh, we, we found out that your typical markers wash off really, really fast uh, and they don't stick. Uh, so we had to find a bunch of Sharpies, which typically come in very dull colors, but he did his best to find a way. That's awesome. Yeah. On that note, um, one thing that I want to kind of comment from a positive note uh, is the random acts of kindness for the frontline healthcare workers that are uh, um, in today's you know world are, are, are being put to the test. Uh, whether it's for lack of equipment or just long hours in some of the, the hot spots for COVID-19. Um, I know I could speak specifically to uh, Windsor-Detroit um, border, being that we're, you know, that's where I'm located. Our border is basically closed to non-essential travel. So it's really just healthcare workers traveling to work in the U.S. who, uh, nurses, doctors who live here and work over there. Um, and the, the border services, uh, both in the Canadian and the U.S. side have been standing outside and applauding them when shifts are ending and providing them with uh, care packages, whether it's food or, or drinks or whatever, come back from long shifts, which has been great. I also know that uh, my, um, my cousin's a respiratory therapist uh, to her town. And so she's really on the front lines and someone randomly just placed a, uh, a giant poster board, thanking her, uh, one of her neighbors on the, the tree in their front lawn. So when she came out uh, outside in the morning, um, she still was the first thing she saw on the way of her shift. So I just want to talk about the people who are, are, are providing some great support for those, uh, individuals who obviously, uh, right now are, are in the, right in the midst of it and, and, and helping out. So thank you to them. And, uh, thank you to everyone who's, you know, being there to provide some, some positivity in those people's days as they're, uh, you know, put in some pretty grueling situations. For sure. And they deserve every bit of it. Well done. Uh, that will do it for us today. Uh, I am Scott Babcock. He's Daniel Mendonca, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of the If You Build It, Will They Learn podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. 
Join the conversation by emailing podcast at haylight.com or on social media platforms at Haylight Inc. And be sure to check us out on the web at www.haylight.com. That's H-A-L-I-G-H-T dot com.